Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Putin pounding and starving Ukrainian civilians with major cities under siege and brutal bombardment, and explore his strategy of weaponizing refugees to create a so-called humanitarian corridor to depopulate Ukraine to thus make it easy to police while dumping millions of refugees on NATO frontline states. Putin employed that strategy when he entered the Syrian war, driving millions of refugees into Europe, which furthered his aims as the backlash fueled the growth of right-wing parties in Western Europe and Brexit in the UK, which Putin also financed. Joining us to discuss Putin's strategic aims is Nicholas Harris, Deputy Director of the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute and the former Middle East Security Program Manager at the Institute for the Study of War, where he was Director of Government Relations responsible for Russia and Eurasia. From 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Basevich, Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security. Then, with Putin, a fascist autocrat and the leader of the global far right who is trying to restore Soviet power in a fascist form, we'll speak with Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, and we'll discuss his article at The Guardian, The Anti-Semitism Animating Putin's Claim to Denazify Ukraine. Then finally, we'll examine how the hideous suffering inflicted on the Ukrainian people by Putin might affect domestic politics in the United States as we watch helplessly, unable to intervene militarily, while the Republicans blame it all on Biden's alleged weakness. Joining us is Michael Kazin, a professor of history at Georgetown University and editor emeritus of Dissent magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed the Nation, a Populist Persuasion, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of Williams Jennings Bryan. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History, and we will discuss his latest book, Just Out, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support, or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Nicholas Harris, who's a Deputy Director of the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute and the former Middle East Security Program Manager at the Institute for the Study of War, where he was Director of Government Relations, responsible for Russia and Ukraine and Eurasia. From 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Bashevich Jr. USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Nicholas Harris. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Nicholas. And you study um, the Russian military, both in Syria uh, and now in Ukraine. And what some of the units are doing uh, is just appalling, shooting up a nuclear plant that was obviously the most horrendous thing you could do. And it just alarmed everybody around the world and the International Atomic Energy Agency in particular. So what what do you make of the professionalism or the lack thereof of these Russian troops? Well, it's an excellent question, Ian. And it seems that now a full week, a little bit more than a full week into this war, the Russians have a chaotic approach. Yes, they are making steady gains in South Ukraine to try to cut Ukraine off from the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea to make Ukraine a landlocked country. And yes, they're making some gains in the East where the Russian-backed breakaway republics, so to speak, of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk are present. But this first week of the war has shown that the Russians have sent units in many different places, um, have tried these sort of Hail Mary type operations to capture the Ukrainian capital of Kiev um, with airborne troops and poorly, poorly supported forces. And increasingly now, out of frustration, the Russians are deploying multiple launch rocket systems, Iskander ballistic missile systems. There are credible reports they'll start bombing uh, Ukrainian cities with strategic bombers. Um, They are trying to lay siege to several Ukrainian cities to cut them off from humanitarian supply lines. So the situation is quite grave. And my concern, and I think this concern is shared by many who follow uh, Russia's strategy in Syria, as well as Russia's strategy in Ukraine closely, is that the Russians will rely on a method that they've been using now for decades. Uh, We saw this in Grozny and Chechnya. We saw this in Syria and we'll likely see in Ukraine, which is essentially to try to starve and shell the population of Ukraine into submission. And my understanding is that Putin is only listening to this small group around him, particularly his defense minister, Shoigu, who apparently is just telling him stuff that he wants to hear. I mean, Putin honestly believes that the Ukrainian President Zelensky is a cocaine addict. I mean, how do you get real information to this guy? It clearly, in a way, benefits the Ukrainians if you have a mad leader like Hitler was, overruling the generals and making harebrained decisions. But at this point... It seems that Putin is determined to repeat what, he, as you point out, what he did in Grozny, uh, and this is a strategy. And I don't see that we necessarily recognize this strategy of basically weaponizing refugees, which is underway, where you bomb and starve people out, then you offer them up a humanitarian corridor, and then you depopulate the country which makes it easier for you to police the country with fewer people. And then you burden the NATO frontline countries and the Western Europeans with another 
influx of refugees. This is all a strategy that Putin employed in Syria, is it not? It's exactly the strategy. And, you know, the, this, this demographic warfare element to what Russia has done in Syria with the support of the Assad regime in Syria um, and what it seems to be trying to do in Ukraine is very worrying. As you pointed out, Ian, you know, we're in the beginning of what could be Europe's worst mass uh, displacement disaster since the Second World War. Many of those frontline, we should mention NATO and uh, states, um, although they have been very generous and seem poised to be very generous to the Ukrainians who are forced to flee, um, you know, their systems will become taxed over time. And there is a certain twisted logic to what Putin seems to be approaching. And as you've mentioned, um, he has a very tight regime around him. Um, he has signaled now for the better part of, of, of a decade that he views Ukraine in almost esoteric or metaphysical terms in, in regard to the history of the Russian people, very blood and soil type of approach. Um, you know, some have compared it to the old Russian imperial mindset. Others believe it's even sort of even more sort of divorced from the modern day than that. But there is something that Putin sees that many others don't see, including those in sort of the outer circles of his government and his military elite. And so this is a very dangerous question, because if Putin sees the world and sees the map and sees the future and end state in a different way than we would call rational and calcul rational and according to a certain logic of statecraft, we are in uncharted territory because if his objective is not only to make Ukraine, even if it's half of Ukraine, fundamentally part of Russia for the foreseeable future and to also weaken NATO and weaken the European Union by weaponizing mass displacements, uh, by threatening the use of, of nuclear weapons, uh, by threatening uh, the use of cutting off energy exports to Europe, as well as closing his own society and making it more difficult for Russians to get accurate information from the outside world and to put Russia on a wartime foot. And you referenced uh, totalitarianism. And, you know, we have an example of that in Russia's modern history with Stalin. And you know, that's the concern is if you have a madman type of Stalin that is, in fact, at the helm of the modern Russian state, you know, that's a potential global catastrophe. And again, I'm speaking with Nicholas Harris, who's a deputy director of the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute and the former Middle East Security Program Manager at the Institute for the Study of War, where he was Director of Government Relations responsible for Russia and Eurasia. From 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Basevich, Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for a New American Security. So let's talk a little about Syria, since you covered Syria and you were actively involved there and spent a lot of time there during the Syrian war, which of course continues. But shortly after Putin deployed his forces in Syria, there was a mass exodus of refugees through Turkey. They were given a, a humanitarian corridor and they fled into Turkey and then on into Greece and then on into Europe itself, causing 
tremendous political problems. The exodus stimulated the rise of right-wing parties and xenophobia across Europe. It became the excuse in part for Brexit and all of those responses and reactions to the exodus of refugees from Syria served Putin's interests in destabilizing Western Europe and essentially Brexit put the UK into a state of paralysis from which it has not recovered yet. So that was, and of course Putin uh, secretly financed Brexit as well. So this is to me an extension of what we're talking about. You know, this KGB man really does think in this way and he'll do anything and everything to uh, hurt the main enemy, the United States. That's his mindset. And he's, unfortunately, he's pretty good at it. It it shows the sort of, you know, as you put it, the KGB mentality. But in, in, to add to that, the this idea that international norms are meant to be pushed or twisted or broken. And, you know, the Russians have become, under Putin, very effective at, you know, a type of Soviet-era information warfare. We saw that with Syria. We saw that with uh, the connections between uh, right-wing and nationalist movements in Europe and in the United States, um, and as well with Russian operatives and with Russian disinformation, uh, the fact that there was a sort of global strategy um, that under Putin in focusing on Africa and Eurasia, and in some ways mimics uh, the the Soviet approach uh, to geopolitics. I think one dynamic here, Ian, that's going to be very important for us all to watch is the second and third order effects of this conflict. Uh, we know that food prices have been rising over the last couple of years, uh, that this has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Ukraine and Russia are major global exporters of wheat, especially to uh, countries that are food, uh, food insecure in Africa, Eurasia, the Middle East, as examples. Um, you have many sort of fragile states where there are power vacuums uh, across the world in which rise in food prices, rise in energy prices, as well as disruptions in the global economy could lead to unrest, could lead to destabilization. Um, and also this open question that's facing the United States uh, in particular, as U.S. tries to pivot to the so-called China challenge in what could be a decades-long competition with China over what the future of the international order looks like and how the human species organizes itself is the fact that Russia, by being cut off from much of the global economy by the, by us, European and uh, sanctions from Asian States could in fact help ex, uh, expand and solidify China's attempt to make its currency, the international standard. And to, we see already as sort of a canary in the coal mine key frontline Asian state partners in the United States, such as India, Thailand, Vietnam, the Philippines, that the U.S. needs to be on side with in order to compete with China. These states 
have indicated that they don't want to get involved in a global effort against Russia, that they're very cautious of being part of an international consensus uh, to punish Putin and his regime. And that is should be troubling to policymakers in Washington, because although there may be short-term efforts to counter Russia militarily, diplomatically, economically, and through communications means, over time, a year from now, two years from now, longer, if Putin is still in power in Russia, Russia so-called wins, in quotation marks, the war in Ukraine, and continues to be isolated but tied into a Chinese-backed international global economic system, you know, there's major question marks as to which there can be an international consensus against Russia. And so this is a shadow point in many ways uh, for sort of the trend in international affairs that has been ongoing since the end of the Cold War. And the states that you mentioned, Nick, and and particularly India, abstained in the UN General Assembly vote to condemn Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. There's a pretty real signal there, right? Yes, and if you take the population of the countries that have been careful to, you know, to not go so far into condemning Russia, you know, it's more than three billion people. You know, and that's just almost half the world's population. A significant part of the world's population are in nuclear-armed, uh, large economic states that are extremely important to international affairs. And so there's a lot of complications, Ian, you know, right. both in terms of Europe and Ukraine, but as well as in the global geopolitical um, gambit. Well, a lot of that's to do with the, with the people in leadership. I mean, Modi is a right-wing nationalist, a religious fanatic, and a, you know, a wannabe dictator. So he's perfectly in tune with Putin and Xi and the military government in Thailand. They're a bunch of thugs. So, you know, <laughs> it's not entirely surprising, at least on an ideological level, why these people are sitting on the fence and tacitly supporting uh, Putin. And it, and it speaks to this challenge that, to its credit, the Biden administration had highlighted on the campaign trail when it was candidate Biden, and then soon after the inauguration of President Biden last year in 2021, which was this idea of how do you maintain an international coalition of, we'll call it democracies, or you know even if they're fragile democracies or hybrid regimes, but democratic leaning against authoritarian states. And this question of, of whether or not democracies, which are still the most common form of governance around the world, um, can continue to be shapers of the international order. And the Ukraine conflict has put another strong degree of torque to that question, and we just don't have the answers. And I suspect here in Washington, one of the major concerns that U.S. strategists, whether diplomatic strategists, economic strategists, or military strategists, will have to find some path forward on is, is there a way to connect the situation in Eastern Europe with Ukraine and Russia to a broader approach 
to countering global authoritarianism. Because as you've mentioned, the fact of the world, the reality of the world, the world as it is, is that while the U.S. may aspire to a, a positive global democratic order, the reality is it has to count on the support of more authoritarian states, including, for example, Turkey, which is part of NATO, uh, in order to counter these so-called great power rivals in Russia and China. And if Russia and China become grow closer and they form an alternative bloc, that's going to be very difficult to overcome over time. So just in closing then, uh, Nicholas Harris, given uh, that at least a million and a half refugees have now poured into Poland, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, and Moldova, and it'll get worse, obviously, as Putin pounds the cities and starves and bombs the people and then offers them up a humanitarian corridor, which he, which you've done in Mariupol a couple of times, but then they've turned around and closed them and trapped the c- civilians in Mariupol where the slaughter is underway. So given that his military is reckless and the leadership of the military are sycophants and Putin is delusional, this is a hideous situation. And again, it's similar to what happened when Putin entered Syria and this massive exodus of refugees took place shortly thereafter into Europe, prompting the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe at the time to say, Putin is weaponizing refugees. Now that he's weaponizing refugees again, is there anything we can do to stop it? The challenge is is that NATO has already come out and said that it will not militarily intervene with its own forces in Ukraine. And there is a devil's dilemma here, which is that we know that Putin very much believes in, you know, making a desert and calling it peace. And the U.S. and its NATO allies have already signaled that they are prepared to support a Ukrainian-led insurgency against whatever Russian-backed administration would emerge in occupied Russian uh, occupied areas of Ukraine. So the challenge is in is that you know you can provide humanitarian support for Ukrainian uh, refugees and displaced, both in terms of in in Ukrainian government-controlled areas of Ukraine, let's say in West Ukraine if it emerges as sort of a truncated state at the end of this war, or in countries in Europe that surround Ukraine. But we might have to prepare for long-term sustained support for millions, potentially tens of millions of people, in not in their home country, as well as deal with the reality of a major conflict and a proxy war in Ukraine simultaneously that will continue to add to human suffering. And this is the diabolical nature of what Putin has done, is that Putin has essentially forced several actors' dilemmas on the U.S., NATO, and European Union as to how to proceed forward. And from Putin's perspective, there's only one correct answer. Stop the stop Ukrainian government, tell Zelensky to surrender, and accept the Russian-imposed order in Ukraine. And Putin's pitch is, then all your problems will disappear. And I think this fundamentally is why 
Ukrainian conflict will be so difficult and will linger with us is that if NATO, US, and Europe accept Putin's option, they have essentially accepted the logic of military adventurism, military interventions, and Putin and his right to interfere in the domestic affairs and to invade Russia's neighbors. So I just don't see this situation backing down. And I think the best that can be done is to mitigate the human suffering for the time being. Well, Nicholas Harris, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with Nicholas Harris, who's a deputy director of the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute and the former Middle East Security Program Manager at the Institute for the Study of War, where he was director of government relations responsible for Russia and Eurasia. From 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Bashevich, Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at how Putin is a fascist autocrat and the leader of the global far right who is trying to restore Soviet power in a fascist form. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world below. There is no sickness, no toil, nor danger in that bright land to which I go. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, and he has an article at The Guardian, The Anti-Semitism Animating Putin's Claim to Denazify Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jason Stanley. Thank you, Ian. And Putin, of course, is, as you point out in your article at The Guardian, Jason, he's a fascist autocrat and the leader of the global far right who's trying to restore Soviet power in a fascist form. And it does seem that it's all rather clear, is it not, with him making these outrageous statements about what he's doing is denazifying Ukraine. He also apparently believes that Zelensky is a cocaine addict. And you've quoted here some of his, well, his former, his member of the his National Security Council and his former Prime Minister uh, Dmitry Medvedev has denounced Zelensky as disgusting and corrupt and faithless, meaning he is not an Orthodox Christian. So the, the Orthodox Christian Easter liturgy begins with the first line, the Jews have killed Christ. So how much is Putin tapping into that kind of incipient anti-Semitism that exists in, in Orthodox Russia? Well, when you're gearing up for war, uh, you want to m send signals to multiple domestic audiences uh, and international audiences. One of the domestic audiences and one of the international audiences, without doubt, are the Christian nationalist anti-Semitic far right. Uh, these are, and you can see this in, in messaging 
by uh, American figures uh, uh, talking about Putin defending the West, defending Christianity from Fox News on down. Uh, but central to this in Eastern Europe and is this idea that the real the real targets of the Nazis were the the, the fundamental targets were the Slavs, uh, were the Russian Christians. Uh, and Jews were kind of incidental to that. But but according to this anti-Semitic narrative, uh, the idea is that Jews have stolen the victimhood narrative. Uh, so you see what Putin doing this by uh, by using fascist, he's using classically fascist tropes of, you know, liberal democracy is a mortal threat, uh, tolerance, homosexuality. Uh, he even talks about cancel culture <laughs> and uh, and all of this and uh, the, all of the cultural warfare memes of the West. And the and what anti-Semites think is that Jews are responsible for bringing this in, um, that Jews are responsible for homosexuality. That was a trope in, for LGBT. That's a trope in Nazi Germany. And so what you find uh, you, uh, what you find Putin doing is appealing to that strong anti-Semitic uh, Eastern European conception when he says things like uh, the uh, Ukrainians are doing a genocide of ethnic Russians uh, in Eastern Ukraine, which is of course complete nonsense, but it, hij it, it feeds into this idea that, you know, the Jews are really behind the, uh, the oppression of Russian Christians and the Jews seek to bring in liberal democracy and displace uh, Christianity as sort of the guiding element of, uh, of the nation. So as you point out in your article at The Guardian, uh, Jason Stanley, the anti-Semitism animating Putin's claim to denazify Ukraine, you make it clear, and it should be clear to everybody, that Putin is in the tradition of fascist cult leaders who promise national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation by ethnic and religious minorities, liberals, feminists, immigrants, and homosexuals. It's all on the record. It's not surprising that Putin, the far right around the world, and you, uh, you make the case that Putin's effectively their leader, it's not surprising that they follow Putin. But what is surprising that some liberals in the, le in the West and here in the United States somehow don't seem to understand that he's a far right leader. And maybe they have some atavistic vision of Russian socialism or Soviet socialism, but He's far. He hates Lenin. He hates Lenin with a passion. He doesn't. He actually likes Stalin, but he hates Lenin. I mean, how do you explain some members of the even the American left their affection for Putin, or their, at least their apologies for Putin? Uh, there's two things going on. The first is just a straight mistake, which is to think that it's justified by history, but to think the real imperialist aggressor, aggressor is the United States. The United States is a terrible imperialist aggressor. It has done horrific crimes, uh, you know, in 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 Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, multiple recent examples of terrible U.S. imperialist aggression. But Putin is equally a terrible imperialist aggressor. And so this this you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend thinking is one aspect here. A second aspect here, and this is more nuanced and subtle, is the left's relation to nationalism. Uh, there's no question that Ukrainian nationalism now 
is ascendant. You, Ukraine is defending its identity, its culture, its history. And in the past, Ukrainian nationalism took the form of brutal anti-Semitic fascist, fascist uh, nationalism, the kind uh, Ukrainian uh, ethno-nationalists participated in the slaughter of Jews along with Nazis, even though they were simultaneously fighting Nazis. However, there is also a kind of civic nationalism, a kind of nationalism that arises when you're fighting imperialist powers, when you're when you are genuinely trying to defend your country's history and identity against an aggressor who wants to entirely obliterate your language, your culture, your cities, your your self-chosen system of government. And that is the kind of nationalism, you, nationalism that has emerged in Ukraine since the Maidan revolution in 2014. Are there fascists in Ukraine? Yes, there are fascists everywhere. Uh, but in 2019, uh, the far right parties won 2%. Uh, which is less than in any other democratic country in the world, I believe. Um, I mean, find me a country in which the far right only get 2%. You'd be hard pressed to do so. So the Ukrainian nationalism is not the the, the anti-Semitic, ultra-nationalist, far-right nationalism of the 1940s. Uh, it's rather a kind of civic nationalism that explicitly embraces a multi-ethnic, multi-religious Ukraine. Uh, that champions liberal democracy and is headed uh, by uh, a Jewish president. So uh, so I think what's happening with the left is they haven't read their Fanon, actually. Uh, you know, when Fanon talks about nationalism uh, in, in on violence, say, as a, as a nationalism, as a force against uh, colonialism, imperialism, uh, you know, he could be he could have been talking about Ukraine. So. Jason Stanley, on today's program, you proceeded by a student of uh, Russian military strategy and also somebody who spent a lot of time in Syria monitoring uh, Russia's military strategy in Syria. And we know that Putin bombed Grozny to the ground and flattened and starved out the people and offered a humanitarian uh, corridor. The same thing happened in Syria, in fact. Now he, that he's pounding and starving Ukrainian civilians in these major cities that are under siege and, and suffering brutal bombardments. It's clear that he's employing this strategy of weaponizing refugees by creating a so-called humanitarian corridor to depopulate Ukraine and thus make it easier to police, at the same time dumping millions of refugees on NATO frontline states. And again, Putin employed this strategy when he entered the Syrian war, driving millions of refugees into Europe which furthered his aims as the backlash fueled the growth of right-wing parties in Western Europe and Brexit in the UK, which Putin also financed. At the time, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe uh, pointed out that Putin was weaponizing refugees. Do you see this happening now with 1.5 million at least Ukrainian refugees now in Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania and Moldova? Well, I, I see it um, as happening, but uh, was it an intentional strategy? That's hard for me to see because I think that uh, Russia thought they would knock over Ukraine in 12 hours or something. Uh, they thought this was going to be an extremely swift war, and they underestimated the capacity of Ukrainians to fight back. Uh, and it seems like Russia is adjusting and now intending to absolutely flatten Ukraine, the cities and everything, and cause these kinds of refugee flows and imitate their previous war crimes and horrific actions in Syria. So 
so I see it uh, definitely is happening now. But whether it's something that Putin sort of planned in advance, no, I, I think, I mean, I'm not a super expert on this, but from what I see, I think, no, he just misjudged. He thought he believed he he got high on his own supply. <laughs> he, he believed that Ukraine actually was going to fold over and and welcome their Russian master um, and and miscalculated. Now that miscalculation uh, has become apparent, uh, there is really, you know, Putin is, you know, the, now he's going back to his strategy in Syria of brutal imperialist uh, war. So just in the last uh, few minutes, uh, Jason, if up to 10 million, perhaps, refugees will end up, maybe more, in uh, these frontline NATO states, some of them, like Hungary, led by Orban, are already sympathetic to Putin. And, you know, he operates on a platform of uh, of xenophobia, anti-immigrant, you know, keeping the, the, the nation pure and Christian. And the CPAC is having their meeting, their, their big convention in Hungary. And we know that Tucker Carlson spent some time there as well broadcasting. So what's going to happen to the Polish government and the Hungarian government? Are they going to stir up anti-immigrant stuff or are they going to be shamed by what's happening? Uh, we don't know. I mean, I mean, th- one of the things that history tells us from uh, about the attempts to create a universal fascist internationale in the past is that there's a kind of incoherence to it. So Putin's trying to create, along with others, along with the right wing in Israel, the right wing in the United States, a kind of defend Chris- the Christian West uh, against the sort of against liberalism and the and Muslim invasion uh, kind of thing. That's that's what's going on. But the problem is each of these and each of these countries is supposed to double down on their own nationalist identities. But the problem here is that Hungary and Poland have histories with Russia. They have histories of brutal occupation uh, when they decided to go other ways. So uh, so Hungary specifically. Uh, so you can't really win elections or be a popular government when it's so obvious Russia is doing to another country what they did to your own country. So so that's that's actually, uh, you know, a hopeful sign about the future, about the breakup of this global international far right Christian nationalist movement or religious nationalist movement. So uh, so there's there, there's there's some hope here. Uh, I can't make predictions about what an enormous influx of Ukrainian refugees uh, is going to do to far right politics in the uh, in the West, whether it will, as the Syrian refugee crisis did, feed into a narrative of the invasion uh, of Europe uh, or uh, of Western Europe or or whether the the sort of racist anti-immigrant narrative depends centrally on an anti-Muslim story. Well, Jason Tanley, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urosky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Anti-Semitism Animating Putin's Claim to Denazify Ukraine. 
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining how the hideous suffering inflicted on the Ukrainian people by Putin might affect domestic politics in the U.S. as we watched helplessly unable to intervene militarily while the Republicans blame it all on Biden's alleged weakness. There's a great and a bloody fight around this whole world tonight In the battle of bombs and shrapnel rain Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down But our union's gonna break them slavery chains And our union's gonna break them slavery chains I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Kazin, who's a professor of history at Georgetown University and the editor emeritus of Descent magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed the Nation, The Populist Persuasion, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914-1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of Williams Jennings Bryan. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History. And his latest book, Just Out, is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Case. Thanks. Great to talk to you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And we are heading into, at least a lot of people are afraid, we may be heading into a one-party state controlled by this failed president who's making a comeback and the massive voter suppression underway by the Republicans could ensure a victory for them in the midterms and then again with a comeback of Trump in 2024. But in effect, we already have a one-party state in as much as the GOP is no longer a party, it's a cult. So how can the Democrats at this moment of peril make the case that they are standing alone for American democracy? Well, it's a great question. It's the, it's the crucial question, certainly. I think they have to do it the way they've done it when they've been successful in the past. That is, argue that programs that will help the great majority of Americans, um, who are mostly working class Americans, uh, health programs, um, giving people uh, free pre-kindergarten for their, for their children, parental leave, pay parental leave, and uh, helping unions to organize. In other words, to really empower people, to use the government to help empower people, uh, to make their lives better um, in a much more enhanced social welfare state than we have in this country. That really is the only way to convince most Americans that the the Trumpian party, as you as you allude to it, is uh, is not a party which has their best interests at heart, and it's only waging a battle based on calling the other side socialist uh, or fascist or whatever uh, uh, is the appropriate term uh, of, uh, of the day. And Democrats have to stand for helping people and helping people to help themselves and, and, and helping to promote social movements, which have always helped uh, Democrats in the past and which are, for the most part, somewhat fragmented today, um, if not completely absent. So I think that's the only way to go, really. You have to fight for democracy by giving the people, uh, the demos, a sense that uh, the party is for them and cares about their interests. Well, it's extraordinary, though, that anybody supports a party. And frankly, at the moment, when you have Trump's buddy, Putin, 
slaughtering Ukrainians. And obviously, that should really uh, put the Republicans on the back foot. But it's possible, as this gruesome bombardment of civilians and the slaughter in Ukraine gets worse and worse, which it will, I'm sure, the American people may, sort of watching helplessly, may get more and more angry at the the government in power for not doing something, which they can't. Their hands are tied because of a possibility of nuclear war. So it's sort of paradoxical. Yeah, although I think at the same time, I think um, uh, also all this, uh, aside from Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson and Trump himself and a few other people on that fringe of their party, which is a powerful fringe, but nevertheless, you know, most Republican senators and Congress people have scurried to uh, to talk about how great the Ukrainian resistance is and, in effect, to support uh, Biden's policies uh, towards Ukraine. So in that sense, I think Biden and the Democrats, by extension, uh, are doing pretty well in terms of public opinion, at least. And we'll have to see. But, and, you know, obviously, Americans are not fighting there. Americans are not going to fight there for the reasons you mentioned and other reasons as well. And so, you know, this has become a war. You know, the historians are out there might uh, understand this reference to the Spanish Civil War in some ways, that in some ways it's a uh, a battle between sort of good and evil, so to speak, progressive good and, and, and proto-fascist evil, authoritarian evil, uh, which Americans, you know, can root for one side or the other, but they're not directly involved. And so we'll have to see what impact it's going to have. But in the end, I think one of the knocks on Biden, a lot of people, even some who voted for him, is that he's not a strong leader. And that has a you know, a masculinist uh, element to it, but also people want someone who will stand up for something they believe in. And in a sense, I think uh, the war so far, at least, uh, is probably helping Biden, uh, even though, of course, it's uh, it's terrible for the Ukrainians. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Kazin, a professor of history at Georgetown University and editor emeritus of Descent magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed the Nation, The Populist Persuasion, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914-1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan. And he's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History. And his latest book, Just Out, is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. And in your new book, Michael Kazin, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party, you you mentioned that uh, Michael Domansky said that the pre-FDR Democratic Party is a, was a horrible, horrible party. Uh, <laughs> but just to touch on FDR, in the preface to your book, in the prologue, A Useful Myth, you quote Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the dedication of the Jefferson Memorial in 1943, saying he, Jefferson, believed, as we believe, that men are capable of their own government and that no king, no tyrant, no dictator can govern for them as wisely as they can govern for themselves. And that, of course, is is what's happening in Ukraine. These people are fighting for democracy. I mean, if we're, it's pretty sad to think that democracy could be slipping through our fingers while people are fighting and dying for democracy against a tyrant. So you would think it's a powerful message but on the other hand you know the republican party has is very much like putin's united russia their primary object and their top priority is to take care of oligarchs is to troll is to engage in culture wars and to rewrite history so this is a strange period that we're in but let's talk about the book 
One of the quotes, again, in your book is that there are members of the Democratic Party that really have no business being in the same party together. Now, that seems a little bit like a reference to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> so has that always been the problem that the Democrats have, an uneasy well, coalition? Democrats have always been, yeah, even the Democrats were, were a you know, pro-slavery, uh, white supremacist party, uh, which is true throughout most of the 19th century in some part of the early 20th century as well, they were still a very heterogeneous party. They included uh, a lot of New York business people uh, who did a lot of trade with the South and were quite rich. Uh, they included working class uh, immigrants from Ireland, especially, uh, who were uh, the backbone of the Tammany Hall machine. They included ordinary white farmers who didn't who didn't own slaves as well as, as those who did. And uh, and by the late 19th century, it, it included a lot of labor unionists as well. And that's, of course, been true uh, uh, ever since that day. So it's always difficult, I think, to have one common message uh, of a party like that, to keep everybody happy at the same time. And that's even more true today when you have um, LGBT people, you have environmentalists, you have, uh, uh, of course, most African-Americans and Latinos and Asian-Americans are Democrats, even though the uh, in some parts of the country, Latinos have been voting more Republican of late. And uh, you also, as you said, have Joe Manchin on one hand, who uh, sort of a moderate Republican <laughs> throughout most American history, who would be. Uh, and you have socialists like uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, and, uh, and Bernie Sanders, who's not a Democrat officially, but he might as well be, of course. So what will unite this group? Uh, as I mentioned before, I think it's uh, strong, universalistic economic programs to help the great majority. I don't see anything else really bringing all these groups together. Now, maybe not Joe Manchin, though he's you know willing to vote for some things, like he's pro-union, actually, partly because the unions are still pretty strong in, uh, in West Virginia. But uh, to bring people together, you need programs that, are, that will help, at least in theory uh, and hopefully in reality, most people in the party and most people they want to vote for, uh, for them. Uh, and that to me is how the new deal was successful. It's how the great society to the degree it was successful was successful. And that to me is not, uh, you can't repeat it exactly. Of course, so history changes. Uh, but I think it has proved to be, uh, the best recipe, if you will, for political success and keeping the party together too, uh, which of course, if the party is divided, sharply divided, uh, it's not going to succeed no matter what policies those in control of the party uh, espouse. Well, how much, though, is it to do with our political system in general has been captured by money since the Citizens United the decision in particular has accelerated the capture where our legislators have effectively become telemarketers spending their days dialing for dollars? <laughs> Uh, the Republicans obviously have an advantage because the big money people tend to support them. But the Democrats, to some extent, have to get their money from the same wealthy plutocrats uh, that are just a little more liberal than the, the more reactionary ones. So when you look at cinema and mansion, you can't help feeling that the financial establishment, the plutocracy, for the want of a better description, has it covered? They own the Republicans, and they all they have to do is peel off a couple of Democrats, and they they thwart any progressive change. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think there's, in Marxist terms, the ruling class is divided. <laughs> that is, there are a lot of rich Democrats, uh, George Soros and many others. He's the best known of them. Who actually, they they are 
pretty progressive on economic issues too, not because even if it will hurt them, even if they'll pay higher taxes, uh, much higher taxes in some cases if progressive Democrats got their way. And there are, that's not all. That's all. I mean, Michael Bloomberg, for example, cares about guns and cares about the environment, but obviously does not uh, care about these economic issues, does not want to empower unions. But um, people I know in the Democratic Party and also some pollsters uh, have, have uh, shown this, too. Uh, uh, Joe McElroy's uh, polls, for example, uh, that a lot of Democratic donors, even wealthy Democratic donors, actually are pretty left on economic issues, too because they are ideological progressives and they buy the whole package. So now, of course, uh, there are certainly people who donate to Democratic campaigns as well as, of course, to Republican campaigns who do it for very transactional reasons, who want to make sure they get the votes they want. But in a healthy divided system where the Democrats are moving to the left and the Republicans are moving to the right, a lot of people who give money, especially large amounts of money to one part or the other, really do it because they believe in the ethos uh, and the policies of the party. And that includes uh, some of these populist economic programs I mentioned before. And you started this book when Trump became president. And just to give our audience a flavor of of the scope of the book, what it took to win a history of the Democratic Party, just quickly read through the chapters, Creating the Democracy, 1820 to 1848, to conserve the white man's republic, 1848 to 1874, bosses north and south, 1874 to 1894, the progressive turn, 1894 to 1920, it's up to the women, 1920 to 1933, an American Labor Party, 1933 to 1948, freedom from fragmentation, 1948 to 1968, whose party is it, 1969 to 1994, and cosmopolitans in search of a new majority, 1994 to 2020. And the irony to me, Michael, is that after the civil rights movement and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Dixiecrats moved into the Republican Party and it's become a Southern Party, but it was, of course, founded by Abraham Lincoln out of the the sort of detritus of the broken Whig Party, which had morphed in part into the know-nothings in the 1850s. And now the know-nothings have come back. That's... (laughs) Isn't that bizarre that we are in a kind of fever of anti-intellectualism in this country? Sure. Well, no, 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 primarily, no things were primarily anti-immigrant party. Uh, of course, that's come back uh, too. It's never really gone away. Uh, no, I mean, there's you know historians like to talk about continuities in the past and discontinuities in the past, and I mean, you've got two two major parties which we really have always had since the beginning of mass parties in the 1820s. You know, you got to find a home in one part or the other, or, or, or you're not really going to have a lot of political influence. And so, and so, all kinds of um, people on the far right and to a certain degree, people on the far left, you know, have to join one party or the or the other, or else we're not going to have much impact. So, it's not surprising, I think, that you have all kinds of uh, <laughs> uh, what, we, what, what we consider um, uh, people with terrible politics uh, who want to take the country in, in a bad direction, uh, who. In other countries, might have their own parties. You know, in Europe, you know, most most European countries, of course, have multi-party systems. And you've got far-right parties. You've got uh, explicitly socialist parties um, to the left of historically, you know, social democratic parties uh, and so forth. You know, in Britain, of course, you have still a, a Brexit party, even though Brexit's been won. But here, for all kinds of reasons, we probably don't have time to talk about. It. We've always had a two-party system, and and so that means that. Uh, uh, 
groups that have been repressed or have gone away for a while, that ideology doesn't go away. And uh, when they begin to grow a little bit in popularity as sort of a xenophobic uh, uh, part of uh, the populace has grown in the last uh, couple of decades, they have to find a party to work in. And the Republican Party has been that party. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Michael Kazin, you mentioned that Joe Biden, uh, his election was, in his election, Democrats postponed a needed debate about the future of the nation's oldest party. For Democrats, the election of 2020 spelled relief instead of deliverance from the dilemma of how to build an enduring majority. So they still are trying to reconcile tensions between populism and identity politics, between courting the white working class and securing equity for people of color. So you've got some solutions. So let's t- talk about the problem quickly and the solution, but in terms of, of what you point to in Nevada. Well, the problem, as you mentioned, is uh, Democrats are a very heterogeneous party with people with very different uh, agendas uh, and different constitu- kinds of, of, of constituents, too, that they have to appeal to. The solution, though, you know, it's a possible solution. I wouldn't say, aha, here it is. <laughs> All you have to do is follow me and uh, everything will be fine. But I do mention this great uh, culinary workers local 226 in Nevada, which is a multiracial, multicultural union, which represents most of the workers in the casinos and hotels and many of the restaurants in Las Vegas and a lot in Reno as well. And they are explicitly political union. Uh, they actually negotiate to get time off from their bosses, pay time off to canvas for for candidates for two months before the election. Uh, if they want to, a lot of them don't want to do that, but those who want to can do that. And uh, they also have a, a robust program of teaching English and citizenship uh, uh, rights and uh, uh, programs to uh, to their members. And they also are, they have a good health care plan they fought for. So in other words, they're an economic group, but also a political group. And, and they're very inclusive. And they are practical, too, politically. They don't uh, support, say, a left-wing candidate in a primary who, if that person won the primary, would not be able to win the general election in Nevada, which is a very much a purple state. So they, they merge practical politics with uh, with very strong you know, economic uh, uh, security for their members, and, uh, and they're a high-spirited group. Uh, they have you know, all kinds of great rallies with good music and everything. So it's a social movement of the kind that, that unions used to boast, and very few still do today. And if we had more unions like that, Democrat and who associated with, with Democrats, which they would be, given the um, ideology of the parties, I think the Democrats would be in much better shape. Well, Mark Kazin, a lot more to talk about, so we'll pick up the conversation again, and I thank you for joining us. I appreciate uh, you asking me. Thank you, Ian. And again, I mean, speaking with Michael Kazin, who's professor of history at Georgetown University and editor emeritus of Dissent magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed the Nation, The Populist Persuasion, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan. And he's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History. And his latest book just out is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared